and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. How are you? Good. <laughs> Seems like we're all hanging in there. Yeah, it's been a crazy week. And we're listening back this week to an interview we did with Joshua Hammer, whose new book is The Falcon Thief, A True Tale of Adventure, Treachery, and the Hunt for the Perfect Bird. That's right. It's a nonfiction book about a man who steals falcon eggs and sells them on the black market. It's highly relevant to all of our lives. Well, you know, I actually (laughs) was thinking that it is relevant because it's about messing with nature, Mm. the repercussions, you know, thinking back on the diseases animals can bring. That's true. Actually, um, COVID-19 possibly came from animal market. Or a secret government lab. Either one. But I, I actually heard it came from pangolins. Yes, I heard that too. So, so that, that's kind of what this reminds me of, this, this book and this story of, of someone who has a disregard, who at once, you know, is closer to animals maybe than most people, to birds, but then kind of has a disregard for their uh, autonomy. Yes, right. And how that might sometimes backfire. Exactly. Yeah. As it did in this case. And, and um, it's, yeah, it's a real, like, caper tale. It is. Yes. Well, let's get to it. Let's talk to Joshua Hammer about his book. Great. We have Joshua Hammer in the studio with us today. Joshua Hammer is the New York Times bestselling author of The Badass Librarians of Timbuktu. He has written for the New York Times... uh, Nope, let's do it again. He has written for the New York Times Magazine, GQ, The New Yorker, National Geographic, The Atlantic, Smithsonian, and Outside, as well as many, many other publications. His latest book is called The Falcon Thief, A True Tale of Adventure, Treachery, and the Hunt for the Perfect Bird. Joshua, thanks so much for coming. Thanks. You can call me Josh. We will. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, Josh, this book focuses on um, a man named Jeffrey Lundrum. I'm Correct. Pronouncing his name correctly. You okay. Are. So um just let's start off by you telling us who this is and how you became aware of him. Yes. Let me start out by telling you how how I became aware of him because then the rest will fall into place. So I was uh, in the winter of 2017, I was in London with my kids on a holiday, and I was just kind of leafing through the um, uh, Times of London in a cafe in Hampstead, and I came across this short article buried in the paper, but it caught my eye. The headline was something like, a Falcon Thief on the Wing Again. <laughs> and the story was about this fellow named Jeffrey Lendrum, who was a renowned thief and trafficker of wild, rare bird eggs, particularly birds of prey, um, which he reached by helicoptering, uh, dangling from helicopters and rappelling down cliffs, grabbing them and then trafficking them to, trafficking them to wealthy uh, Arabs in the Middle East. Um, it, the story went on to say that he had um, been arrested and convicted of stealing albino peregrine uh, falcon eggs in um, Patagonia and been jailed in Brazil and had jumped bail and was now um, at large or on the wing, as the Brits sometimes say. 
Um, so yeah, the story had a lot of elements that just uh, immediately intrigued me, and uh, I began to kind of. Um, uh, with the eye first towards doing a magazine piece, dig into the life of uh, Jeffrey Lendrum to try to find out what uh, what what back what was what would have driven this character to choose such an unusual way to make a living. So, so that was kind of my my quest to find out as much as I could about him, and uh, that's how the journey began, really. So, and you give a little background in the book about the history of falconry. Um, what would it, what, I mean, this is, and this has been, of course, on the decline over the past, well, let's say what? I don't know. I mean, years? it's, it's that, well, yeah, habitat <laughs> loss and uh, lots of other factors. The fact that the birds are protected, there's only so, so much uh, you can do with them. That's tightly regulated sport. Yeah, it's definitely dwindled from its glory days, maybe a thousand years ago. Although the, the middle, the, uh, the, uh, Arabs, particularly the wealthy Arabs, particularly in the Persian Gulf, still practice it with great enthusiasm. Right. So that's that's kind of what I wanted you to ask you. So what are the circumstances under which this would be in some way a profitable venture for someone to For to someone undertake? who's stealing, who's stealing right. eggs? Yeah. Yes. So um, the, the wealthy sheikhs in the Persian Gulf... Um, they and I'm talking, and, and that's and that counts for a lot of people because there are a lot of wealthy Arabs in the Persian Gulf. Um, uh, there's a falconry's been in the in the society for for you know, three thousand years. Um, the way it's morphed over the in more recent years is that uh, the wealthiest sheikhs take their birds and they go on um, expeditions to Afghanistan or Uzbekistan or anywhere where they can hunt what's called the hubara bustard, which is this turkey-like bird. They basically shot it out of existence in their own con- in, in the Persian Gulf, so they have to travel abroad to do it. So they take their birds with them uh, and hunt for a week, two weeks on these lavish expeditions. Um, the way they procure the birds, and this is the key to what it's all about, because the um, birds of prey are, are tightly, are very strictly protected since, this is not, since the 1970s, you've had uh, basically endangered species laws all around the world. The CITES, Convention on Inter- International Trade and in Endangered Species, signed by almost 200 countries, makes it you know illegal to take wild birds and to uh, engage in commerce with wild birds, birds of prey in particular. So these sheikhs have had to find other ways of getting these birds. And there, as a result of these tight laws, there's the phenomenon of uh, captive breeding has come about, which is all very tightly regulated by governments. These are breeders who bring birds together and and mate them and then nurture them and incubate the eggs. And it's all very closely watched by the government. However, there is a strong belief among the uh, wealthy Arabs of the Persian Gulf that the best birds, the fastest birds, the strongest birds are those from the wild. Um, because of natural selection and generations passing down their genes in wild environments, that these are the ones they want. But because the business is basically because it's illegal to take these wild birds, they have to find ways, uh, they they basically have to turn to the black market to get them. Mm -hmm. And so Jeffrey Lendrum was born in uh, Rhodesia. Yeah, he was born in what's now Zambia, but his family, northern Rhodesia, British colony. His family moved down to southern Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, in the 60s. He grew up basically in the bush. I mean, this was his mm-hmm. element. His father was a sort of amateur naturalist, collector. Uh, he grew up within about 20 miles of this uh, amazing national park that had these 
cliffs and bizarre rock formations and, and lush vegetation and lots of uh, birds and, and furry mammals that birds of prey like to, to eat. And so it became a kind of uh, birds of prey uh, Eden. And this is where Lendrum learned to climb and where he learned to rappel down cliffs uh, and became a, an amateur ornitho ornith ornithologist in his own right and then gradually gravitated towards illegal doings. And he started out doing that with his father, yeah. robbing birds' nests. And, 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 but I couldn't quite tell. So did that start off just as with a collector's impulse or were they already having nefarious plans for their eggs? Well, it's illegal to collect eggs. I mean, as it is in the UK, you can't, and, and here, I guess, in the States as well, you can't just grab eggs uh, of, off nests and blow out the embryos and put them in private collections. There's, because of the endangered species laws, basically in the UK and in, and in Africa, that Southern Africa at that time, all birds or most birds were protected. So just simply the act of collecting mm -hmm. put him on a on a on an illegal path, um, and he did it with his father. The two of them snuck around collecting eggs, actually under the guy under the guise of being uh, of of uh, participating in an ornithological survey of eagles that gave them access to all of these nest sites. They were using that cover story to then plunder eggs from nests. Um, just. For their initially, it looks like they did this for their own bird collection, their secret clandestine bird collection, but uh, egg collection. But at some point along the way, it looks like they started doing it commercially as well to 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 satisfy the the uh, uh, hunger of um, exotic bird uh, uh, aficionados. Um, initially it looks like it was in the United Kingdom and then eventually over, you know, a decade and a half, Lendrum found his way to the Middle East, to clients in the Middle East where the big money was. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things about the book is that the way that you, um, and that other, some of the other people within the book discuss this kind of collecting as, uh, often as an addiction because it doesn't, it's unlike any other kind of collecting in the world in that you can't show off what you've gathered. Um, and so essentially these people just hoard these eggs. That's true. Yeah. And keep they're kind them. Of a, they're kind of somewhere between hoard collectors and hoarders, mm -hmm. you know, this yeah. murky area in between. Yeah. How would you characterize this kind of egg collecting? And Well, um, one of the, the other main protagonist in the book is uh, is a wildlife policeman, a British wildlife policeman named Andy McWilliam, who is basically the first one to really size up Lendrum as this global criminal that he is and to try to put him behind bars and find out about his past and about all of his links to the to the shakes. And Len, uh, sorry, McWilliam had gotten his start in the ornithological crime uh, investigations by pursuing this very strange phenomenon that you refer to of, of, of egg collectors, which seems to be largely a, a British phenomenon, much mm -hmm. like, you know, train spotters, uh, those people who stand on train platforms and, and in trench often in trench coats for some reason, jotting down the numbers of trains for some peculiar <laughs> addiction. Um, the movie Train Spotting, you may remember, was refers to that bizarre um, avocation. So, Bird collecting, I mean, egg collecting has the same kind of impulse. It's this weird compulsion um, 
but it also is to people go off into the into the wild in Scotland or Wales and steal these eggs compulsively. I mean, some of these people amass collections into the thousands, and it's all completely illegal. It's all has to be done very clandestinely. They often risk their lives. Several of them have been killed doing so, and many of them have been arrested, you know, a dozen times and just can't stop. Yeah. God, yeah. it's, I, I, I wanted to just comment that I also, and I think you referenced this in the book, that it seems that there's some hearkening to like a colonialist explorer past that these men, they're off, because you don't mention any women in the book who do this. You know, they, mm. they think of themselves as kind of... Yeah, I think there are a lot of different elements yeah. involved. There's even this sexual element that somebody, uh, one of the a, a, a bird biologists, raised about describing some of these Victorian era collectors who would like forbid women from looking at their eggs and ogle them in a kind of bizarre way. Uh, so for some reason, the fertility, the shape, whatever, may for some of these guys have some sort of uh, you know sexual connotation. It's just hypothesis. Um, but certainly, I, you know, I, I, I've heard that mentioned by some of the cops oh who investigated this. But there's a lot of elements. I mean, this was so like bird, bird egg collecting actually in the 18th, 19th centuries was actually considered a, a, a form of ornithology, a, a science. Um, and the people who engaged in it were actually, uh, for a while, they were, uh, their feats were admired. They were written about uh, very, uh, uh, with great admiration for their climbing exploits and their alleged scientific uh, exploration. Well, it turned out that really like nothing, almost nothing, uh, no valid science uh, or practically no valid science ever came out of egg collecting, out of eggs. And um, by the you know 1930s, 1940s in the UK in particular, the sentiments had totally turned against these guys. Um, they were accused of driving bird species into extinction. And then um, in the 1950s, the UK introduced its first uh, bird protection laws. And then ultimately, the, the laws got stricter and stricter until by, the, uh, by 2000 or so, you could actually get sentenced to, to several years in jail for doing this sort right. of activity. I, I want you to talk about the lengths that these collectors, and specifically Jeffrey Lundrum, go to and went to to get the eggs. How, I mean, it's incredible. Do do? I'm, I'm basically... Um, I mean, they're 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 sort of there's a, it really depends on what kind of bird you're talking about. You have these raptors, these birds of prey. They tend to lay their eggs in really difficult places to reach, like uh, on, on in Aries, um, five hundred, a thousand feet off the ground on cliffs where that make that are um, uh, protected from p uh, possible predators. So to get them. Um, these guys would have to, you know, basically rappel down cliffs, um, snatch these eggs, make their way to safety, all while keeping the eggs intact. Or they would have to climb trees, you know, some serious tree climbing to reach them. For a lot of these guys, the great thrill was in finding these like tiny little marble-like eggs of certain species that would be buried in, you know, heavy undergrowth on the ground and would be almost impossible to to find. And that was their great thrill is actually uncovering this like some sort of, you know, intense hide and seek operation. But Lendrum was the other kind. Lendrum was the bird of prey uh, egg uh, chaser. And he, his, his most uh, astonishing exploits 
funded by um, wealthy Middle Easterners was to actually hire a charter a helicopter and with an old army buddy of his from Rhodesia um, go up to the Arctic and actually circle around cliffs in helicopter in the helicopter looking for the um, Aries of what's is known as a gerfalcon. These are these huge, often pure white um, raptors that are highly sought after by Middle Easterners. They only exist um, in the northern climes of the planet in places like Greenland and Iceland and um, Siberia and northern Quebec. And his particular mission was in Nunavik province, in northern uh, Nunavik territory in northern Quebec, um, where he just spent, he, would, he made several trips actually over the course of a few years until he was caught um, with a helicopter basically dangling from a rope and reaching out and grabbing these eggs, putting them in a cooler bag and then having his pilot sort of nodding, giving a signal to his pilot and being deposited safely on a cliff, on top of a cliff, and then getting back in the helicopter and then roving around looking for the next uh, next nest. Of course, there's like, because these birds are very territorial, so it's like five miles in either direction. There'll be nothing, but then they would start scoping along, flying along these cliffs until they saw another one and they'd have to repeat the process. They did this for, you know, days on end, stealing plundering nature um, for the sake of these uh, sheikhs who wanted these fabulous white birds for their personal collections. And what effect does that kind of plunder have on the bird population? Well, there's a lot of debate about that. Um, there, there, A couple of studies showed... So, so Lendrum is not the only one doing this. Right. Um, I mean, he's the only one who keeps getting caught. Um but, um, you know, that doesn't, we don't know how many successful missions he had. He's obviously been doing this for many years. It's just that his uh, skills kind of got rusty and he made it, started making mistakes and got caught a lot. But um, it's, you know, these, these wildlife conservation outfits uh, uh, say that in Siberia, for instance, the uh, population of saker falcons, actually in Russia, not just Siberia, but the whole population of saker falcons, which are an endangered raptor species, a little um, larger than the peregrine, over the course of like 20 years, dropped from 30,000 pairs to um, 2,000 pairs in the entire country. They're considered critically endangered. And the reason they dropped was because the Arabs had this great hunger for these birds and um, uh, they were willing to pay big money to these trappers to go catch them any way they could, whether climbing in nests or, or, or snatching them out of the sky using lures. Um, you know, like like a, a pigeon with um, a net tied to it that the bird would be entangled in, the peregrine would be, enta- uh, the saker would be entangled up and then fall to earth. So there, there's some pretty serious um, environmental depredation going on here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, you're saying the other protagonist or the, the true protagonist of the book is Andy McWilliams, the Police McWilliam, off. the good guy, the, good the hero. Guy. You know, you yeah. need a hero. You can't just, I think readers just don't want to read an entire book about, wouldn't have wanted to read an entire book about the uh, exploits of a villain, you know? Of so course. Fortunately, McWilliam was there to provide the figure that you kind of root for. And he also, you know, he, it's the cat and mouse game be- yeah. between him and Lendron. That's true. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Joshua Hammer, author of The Falcon Thief. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation.
have Samantha Culp in the studio with us today. Samantha Culp is a writer and producer based in Los Angeles after a decade in Greater China. She's produced a number of documentaries for Netflix, and her writing has appeared in publications like The Atlantic, The New York Times Magazine, and Art Forum. She is here to recommend a book for us. Samantha, what book are you going to recommend? Hi, thanks Hi. for having me. Um, I'm going to recommend A Journal of the Plague Year, which okay. is... Written by... It is a catalog of an exhibition that occurred in a Hong Kong exhibition space that I used to work with many years back and then has traveled to different locations. And as a catalog, it contains a lot of the kind of exhibition in encapsulated form, as well as essays, articles, and historical documents. Ah, okay. Um, and why are you recommending this book? What, what do you like about it? So I've been revisiting this book because uh, we are all living now under the fear of the coronavirus hitting yes. different places around the globe in different intensities. And especially having watched it in the past couple months with a lot of where I used to live in mainland China and Hong Kong and friends and colleagues dealing with it there. Um, and now, of course, it finally becoming more of a reality instead of like a distant speculation for the rest of the globe. Um, I think we all have kind of epidemics on our mind. Mm -hmm. And this catalog and the exhibition that it came from uh, was staged first in 2013 and then a few other um, iterations in different locations. But it reflects on 2003 in Hong Kong with uh, the eruption of SARS mm. uh, and also um, goes back to kind of look at the history of how um, sickness, health, uh, and colonialism intersected in Hong Kong in a very specific way that's also really kind of relevant and unfortunately still kind of uh, politically relevant all over the world. Were you in Hong Kong at the time? I was, yeah. Mm -hmm. I was not even living there yet, but I was there on a study trip okay. um, in the spring of 2003 when suddenly headlines started coming out in the daily newspaper of mystery virus discovered at the hospital actually next to the university where we were staying. Oh, wow. Um, so yeah, it was a very personal experience. And of course, um, I was headed back to the States and nearly got quarantined, but did not. And of course, all the kind of new colleagues I'd made in Hong Kong who had to deal with this. And I think in a funny way, because that was prior to full social media that we've lived under for the past 10 years or mm -hmm. so, um, people don't really, I think if you weren't there, don't have as deep a memory of how disruptive and terrifying um, it was. And also because SARS is that much more um, fatal. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a really uh, haunting and terrible time for Hong Kong and also marked a kind of political watershed about a lot of other issues. And at the same time, there is a... Um, uh, one of Hong Kong's most beloved uh, stars, the singer and actor Leslie Jung, um, right during the first weeks of SARS, actually um, died by suicide. Mm. And um, that was an incredibly demoralizing and kind of tragic event for Hong Kong that almost captured the mood of that time. I can imagine. Yeah. So are the essays in this book, are they, how do they deal with the epidemic? Are they historical? Are they personal? Do they range? Yeah, there's a, there's a whole array and also some of the really vivid and um, arresting um, artworks that are mm. from the show. Um, but there are a couple pieces about uh, some some about SARS, kind of from an essayistic perspective and from a journalist who was there at the time. Some by art historians looking at even like SARS in cinema and Hong Kong cinema and mm. even how Hong Kong cinema was you know going through its own convolutions at that time. And then some going back to look at 
uh, when bubonic, bubonic plague came to Hong Kong in 1894, which was um, one of the last kind of major modern epidemics of bubonic plague, and also that's where um, finally it was sort of isolated. The bacillus was isolated mm-hmm. by a team of, I think, some French and Japanese doctors who were there studying at the time. So it goes back oh. and kind of traces like Hong Kong as a, a world meeting place where, of course, like even prior to really globalization, that was a site where virus, uh, you know, sickness and health issues and colonialism were intersecting. Okay, what what is your method? What is your personal method and theory to dealing with uh, an epidemic or a pandemic? Yeah, well, so I think one in which this the book, you know, that's why, why I wanted to, to share this book is to focus very much on like scientific reality mm-hmm. and sort of uh, obviously like trusted institutions and of course being very cautious and taking precaution, but also to be really aware of the ways that uh, an epidemic can be kind of uh, shaped for political ends and especially used as a tool of xenophobia and racism mm-hmm. um, and oppression. And I think that that's something we're all like very much need to be on the lookout for. Right. Um, so of course, on the very basic level, washing of hands, <laughs> constantly washing hands, trying to do, do air do hug. I am. I'm mm-hmm. doing a lot of that right now. Um, and I think that there's a lot of good, really solid advice out there. Um, and of course, being aware of, uh, yeah, just just how quickly um, something like this can become a political tool. Right. Well, Samantha, will you tell us the name again? And will you tell us where listeners can find it? Sure. Um, so this catalog is called A Journal of the Plague Year. Um, it was published by Parasite Gallery, and mm-hmm. I think it's available via Parasites, Parasite Hong Kong's website, okay. as well as um, other Amazon and other booksellers. Um, and of course, the title is a reference to Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year from 1722, which reflected on the English plague of the 1600s. All right. Thank you so much, Samantha, for coming in and talking to us about this excellent book. Thanks so much. We've been talking to writer and producer Samantha Culp. Thanks again, Samantha. Thanks so much, Vinaya. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Joshua Hammer, author of The Falcon Thief. It's interesting because he starts to get into wildlife protection and um, prosecution. And uh, he, at the same time, though, it's like he's finding all these terrible, like really shocking things like these zoos where people just like have these you know, leopards in a, cages and other like many, many. Grim animal cruelty stories. Yes. Indeed. Yes. But um, I, I guess I was struck by that he starts to be kind of celebrated by animal activists and he wants to distance himself from that because he doesn't think of himself or he, he wouldn't want to be an activist. Um, but at the same time, it, it seems like in the book, kind of the, the consequences for uh, these crimes are, are rather minor. I mean, in, from my point of view, I guess, I, if, the, if you could, like, a, you know, four or five months, 20 months in jail... Yeah, generally we don't have the same sort of, uh, um, you know, laws covering covering animal cruelty as you do human cruelty. Um, There's definitely a a different standard there. However, some of these people who just have engaged in really serious atrocities against animals, um, there was a character I mentioned in the book. uh, This wasn't an Andy McWilliam case, but it was a colleague of his who uh, in the in the National Wildlife Crime Unit 
who busted a guy uh, who was try- who uh, had uh, stolen um, beautiful eagles, uh, rare eagles out of Thailand. And what he did was um, stuff them, literally stuffed them into plastic tubes um, and then stuck them in his luggage um, and stored the luggage in the um, de- uh, you know, unpressurized freezing hold of, uh, of an airplane on the way to London. And by the time these birds were taken out, uh, that a Heathrow Customs got a tip and opened the luggage and found these birds. Most of them were dead. Others were just, you know, in terrible shape. Some of them died, died afterwards. You know, tremendous cruelty. So this guy was sentenced to um, six and a half years in prison for this, mm-hmm. um, which is a pretty tough crime, a pretty tough sentence for a for a you know an uh, uh, for an animal related crime i mean um yeah. you know uh lendrum t- typically got sentences of you know 2 years 3 years actually his most recent recent sentence was 3 and a half years in jail so that's not that's a long time to be in prison re, re, you know for uh, i mean yeah i mean yes there are some who are getting slap on the slaps on the wrist yeah. but 3 and a half years is nothing to you know, treat lightly, I think. I guess that's true. Yeah. It seems fair to me, but... Um. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying it's not fair. I'm just saying I don't think it's a slap. I wouldn't consider it a slap on the wrist. Yeah. A lot of these guys, yeah. I mean, really, these laws have all been tightened up in the last 20 years. Um, in the 1990s, there was when it was really like... The, that was just sort of before the... Be, uh, as an environmental consciousness and was developing, I'd say, across the world, I mean, you could, you would never get a jail sentence for doing something like this. Uh, so, so, you know, a couple thousand dollar, a couple thousand pound or thousand dollar fine, you'd be on your way. So, and what do you think drives or drove, because I guess he's retired at this point? Mm-hmm. Mc, uh, McWilliams still doing his oh, he's, thing okay, and he's winding down. His, he's okay. in his mid-60s, you know. Um, what do you think, you know, drives drives him to his job he is an animal lover but do you think it's also just enforcing the law just serving justice or do you think there's something more that's compelling him to I think he's a bird he kind of fell into bird bird uh, watching by accident he was a sort of a a street kid from Liverpool and uh, a tough guy who played rugby like a ferocious rugby player until his mid 30s when he started getting really uh, slowing down and getting pretty badly mauled and injured on the field and then he was looking for something else to do and f- sort of fell his way fell into ornitho- uh, bird watching and just became uh, an expert in birds and he was also at the same time kind of going through a midlife crisis at work where he was tired of being a liverpool street cop and he didn't want to sort of go up in the organization and be behind a desk he loved being out in the field um, love the investigations, but he didn't want to bust drug addict, drug pushers, drug addicts, or you know, uh, uh, murderers and burglars, bicycle thieves. He was tired of that, so it kind of naturally, he kind of naturally was drawn into these weird bird crimes, and it started off with these egg collectors, um, and then sort of branched out into all these different uh, uh, animal cruelty cases, shutting down zoos. Um, you know, he he's a, he's a conservationist. He believes strongly in you know, uh, I mean, he's also a lawman. I mean, since the time he was 70, 17, you know, he's been on a, uh, it was a, just decided to become a policeman when he was 17. So, um, yeah, I think it's a combination of uh, a desire to enforce the law, a, f- a thrill, the thrill of the investigation and a commitment to um, wildlife and conservation. Yeah. It's funny because this book, I think, at times puts, um, or at least put me in a sort of a difficult bind where generally I don't root for a cop 
Right. Um, and, and it can be tough to root for a cop. And then there are instances, I hear, I think, in the book where you gesture towards that, like in the, in the riots that happen at Liverpool uh-huh. and the ways in which cops do often um, uh, enact their power in this world in a way that is harmful rather than helpful. Um, yes, yes, that's true. I but, mean, right, sorry, go ahead. Well, no, no, no. I mean, the Liverpool, you're referring to the, an incident in the, uh, in the 80s when McWilliam was just starting out right. when um, Liverpool, which has a, a significant African, Caribbean, black population going back, you know, 300 years, um, when, when there was just like what we're having in, you know, in the United States, sort of certainly the same sort of issues. I mean, stop and frisk and just great animosity between the police and, and, uh, and it's, um, you know, minorities in, in, in England, especially in Liverpool, which is a tough place to begin with. So Lendrum found, I mean, sorry, uh, McWilliam found himself on the police side of things, um, you know, uh, but he didn't really, um, you know, he was a young guy. He wasn't particularly sophisticated. He's just was doing his job, which mm-hmm. is, you know, uh, uh, basically trying trying to um, avoid being badly injured. That's what that, when when during the, the what's called the Toxteth riots of the early 1980s, like the worst um, riots that uh, that England has ever experienced, and that, and that uh, McWilliams in the middle of. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I was curious also what uh, when I was reading about McWilliam and how he doesn't consider himself an activist how you think of yourself because mm. as you were writing this did you think i'm crossing some lines in t- in, toward activism am i a ju- or am i just a journalist no. or a writer well i've loved I, I love the outdoors i'm i do consider my i don't really consider myself a birder in the manner of some of the people we're writing about here um, but you know, I'm a contributing editor for Outside Magazine. I, I I love nature. I spend a lot of time out in the in the outdoors. I was drawn to um, uh, you know, I kind of I found I found myself pretty appalled. Uh, I mean, both both kind of mesmerized by Lendrum's uh, activities as well as appalled by them. I mean, on the one hand, I could really relate to the uh, having spent many years in Africa. As a as a correspondent for Newsweek, um, I could relate to his love of the African wild. You know, we share that, and even when I talked to him, I mean, that was there was kind of a bond between us. I think mm. an understanding that he sensed for me that he knew uh, he he sensed my love for the wild. Um, but you know, at the same so so that aspects of his personality, I actually kind of admired in a way and related to. But it's like this um, part of him kind of twisted or veered off into this kind of just appalling direction um, that I found, uh, you, you know, I mean, despicable, basically. So I found him a very complex character. Like I said, he sort of appealed to the naturalist, environmentalist in me. Uh, uh, I, I mean, the, 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 the wilderness lover and um, horrified the environmental part of me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and where is he now? You want me to give that away? No, I mean people. Oh, can, okay. People can no. People can <laughs> you, Google it. It's easy to find. He's still in prison. He 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 got arrested um, for the fifth time uh, in 2018 uh, at Heathrow Airport, and he um, is is uh, the latest I have heard, and I and I check this pretty regularly. He he was supposed to be out sent, sent uh, out of prison in the UK, released on parole, what they call license in the UK, when they they let you out pretty much half or sometimes even a third of the way through your sentence. 
and then you have to stay in the country and you're closely monitored. But he, from what I understand, he's still there. They've extended this prison term because the Brazilian government is after him. He jumped bail, as I said at the very beginning mm -hmm. of our conversation, from a, a prison sentence in Brazil in 2016. And the Brazilians want him. They want him. Mm -hmm. So um, there's I, I, every couple of weeks, there's a, a appears to be a new hearing um, where his lawyers are desperately trying to keep him from getting put on a plane to um, Sao Paulo and taken to a Brazilian jail mm -hmm. cell for the next five years. My God. Yeah, pretty uh, horrible. Yeah. <laughs> but he deserves it. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that struck me about him is, aside from his sort of uh, the the adventuresome and the brutality with which he, or, well, or the, um, hmm, what's the right word? What's the word that's not brutality, but it's like single-mindedness in which he pursues these mm -hmm. eggs, um, is the tenderness with which they have to be treated. <laughs> and. That really, that really surprised me. It seemed it surprised me that a person could be capable of both of those things. Well, for the and first of all, you you know you have to be you have to treat them with incredible care if you're right. going to be shipping them, you know, taking them off cliffs or from trees and uh, putting them in the in your car, driving long distances, and then getting them on flights and and um, uh, trafficking them, smuggling them thousands of miles. So, I mean, just from a on your person, point of view. on your person, on right? your, often You're... on your person, not always. Sometimes you put them in like battery powered incubators or wrap them up and put them in, um, you know, overhead compartments. It's unclear how many different ways he had of doing that, but often carry them on his body to keep them warm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, so from a commercial point of view, delivering them alive to your clients, which is what you really want to do. You have to be, you have to be careful, but also I think, yeah, the guy from every, every one of his friends that I've talked to, a former accomplice who was involved in these egg raids with him, told me that he absolutely, he has a love for these birds. Um, he's always loved birds and he has rationalized his crimes by arguing that he's saving these, he's saving these creatures. He's not, um, he's not killing them. I mean, yeah, sometimes they do die from the uh, shock of being you know, taken off nests and, and transported in these crazy ways. But um, he's really dedicated to keeping them alive. And as, I mean, he's a complex figure, as I keep saying, you know. Um, he's Here he is, like, plundering nature. At the same time, he really has believed, convinces people and and seems to have convinced himself that he's, by taking them to these environment, the, these well, turning them over to these wealthy sheikhs, um, where they have incredible hospital care and are con get guaranteed to eat you know, on a regular basis and have room to fly in these giant air-conditioned bird gymnasiums called hack pens, um, that they're leading a, lo a fantastic life that they would not have in the wild. It's, I think it's a difficult argument to make. I mean, it's a dubious argument to make, but he's got mm -hmm. himself sold on mm -hmm. it, you know. And I'm wondering, during your time as a correspondent, when you were, um, you know, reporting from African countries, uh, if you if you ever reported on other stories of um, maybe like, you know, smuggling of ivory. Yeah, for or, sure. Yeah, for sure. I was, yeah, I didn't wasn't really even aware that this black market existed, which is, but I had done, um, yeah, a lot of stories about the. I, I sort of used every opportunity that I could to um, get out into the African bush because I just found it so amazing. So whenever there was a really good poaching story, like I did something for Smithsonian Magazine a few years ago, um, I just basically followed the trail of a poacher in Chad, uh, one of the really remote, rough 
places in the world, but they also have some of the last populations of desert elephants. Mm-hmm. Um, and this guy was sort of almost single-handedly um, wiping them out. So I went off on his trail and, um, you know, done those kind of stories. Not, you know, I don't have like a regular diet of them, but right. I do, I, it's been a while since I've done uh, that kind of African poaching story, but I find them, you know, I just, I love the experience. Basically part of me, just part of it is just, I just love being out there. Yeah. And so is that how you balance the kind of, because to me, that's like, I couldn't imagine a more depressing story to report on. So I, is that how you balance out the, you know, despair of it just with actually getting to be out? Yeah. I mean, I just was there. flying in a helicopter, in a, in a, uh, in a small plane with the uh, chief warden of this desert um, uh, reserve in the, in, in the eastern, in eastern Chad, you know, near the Sudan border and just seeing these um, you know, the last herds, right? Four or 500 of them all congregated together. It was it's an incredible sight, you know, to be flying over that. And some, mm-hmm. then we would get out and uh, sometimes try to follow them by land and creep through the bush and actually get right up to, you know, hu- a huge herd of them and just observe them. And um, I mean, this was not, and this wasn't like, you know, canned tourism, such as so much, a lot of African safaris have taken on this. This was like the raw elemental, go to a place where just, you know, very few people venture into and see the last surviving elephant herds. I, I love that stuff. Mm-hmm. What, um, how do you decide what story to pursue? Uh, you're talking about how, I mean, because I do like, I do books. Those are, yeah. you know, three-year projects. Mm-hmm. And then in between that, I do magazine pieces. And um, I don't know. Um, I Basically, I, the, I've done long-form narrative journalism for maybe the last, uh, like ex- almost exclusively for the last 14 years since I left Newsweek magazine, where I had a 14-year career as a foreign correspondent. So um, I don't know. Things just strike me as, as a good yarn um and but they do tend to you know they're um my most one of my more recent pieces was for the new york times magazine where i did i went to the the philippines and and spent you know uh, 10 days with maria ressa the philippine journalist who's uh quite well known in the US, former cnn correspondent who's uh, basically fighting for press freedom, but is, has run up against the dictator Duterte in the Philippines. And people covered her a lot, but nobody sort of really went deep into her element in the Philippines to see what that was like uh, to, be, to be Maria Ressa face. And it also because of the parallels between um, our president and Duterte and the kind of rhetoric that both use about the press. Um, that just was a story that spoke to me. And it has a, you know, I mean, she's basically on, you know, facing 50, 60 years in prison if uh, for you know trumped up uh, trumped up charges, clearly trumped up charges, and it's the I, I am drawn to human rights related stories. I'm drawn to environmental stories, um, uh, just you, you know uh, um, stories of heroism, good yarns, and mm-hmm. they can come in any different way. But they do tend to be international stories. That's always you know, mm-hmm. what I've, I've sort of. Um, made my uh, my brand is kind of going after these uh, foreign stories. And, uh, um, you know, that's not to say that there's not incredible stuff happening in the United States, especially these days. But, you know, I'm sticking to the brand. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, speaking of good yarns, uh, I thought this was a really amazing yarn. And, well, thank um, you. Congratulations and thank you so much for being here. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you.
You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 